When I was 13 years old, I went to a men's retreat up in our San Bernardino Mountains. <clears throat> and uh, I remember sitting in this kind of smallish conference room, and there were 30, 40, maybe 50 men there together, and we were all listening to a guest speaker for the weekend uh, speaking about the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was speaking about uh, the Spirit's coming, the Spirit's power, how we needed to ask that the Spirit would, would come inside of us and give us the, the gifts, the supernatural abilities that Christians are supposed to have. Uh, and uh, I got that weird feeling. Have you ever, you ever had that where you're, you're sitting there, you're listening to a, a, a pastor or speaker, and it seems like they are looking and talking just to you? Anyone out there right now feel that? <laughs> That's how I felt. In fact, I, I still remember that speaker's eyes just, just burning uh, holes in the back of my brain as he kept making eye contact with me, the 13-year-old, over and over and over again. And I'm thinking, why me? I mean, why are you focusing on just me? I mean, this meds retreat isn't even for me. I just kind of snuck in here. I don't, I don't even really belong here. I'm just a kid along for the ride. And what throughout the message was, was uncomfortable transformed into something panic-inducing as the speaker closed his message. What you normally expect would be for the speaker to, to close in a word of prayer and then dismiss us to small groups. But instead, he, he said, you know what, I, I want to I do something. And I want to pray that some of you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit right here, right now. And with that, he stepped down, walked right over to my chair, and he asked men to gather around me and lay hands on me and pray that I might receive the gift of speaking in tongues. And I, I can still remember, the, the, have you ever had someone pray for you and lay hands on you? The weight of those hands, oh, you feel it. Your shoulders, your back. And as they were praying, all kinds of questions were, were going through my brain. It, it, was I not truly a Christian? Was I not fully a Christian? Was there something more that I had to do? Something more that I needed to ask for so that I could really be legit? <laughs> and what advantage would, would this speaking in tongues thing uh, be to me or, or even to the kingdom of God? I just, I just didn't under, understand. As we turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning, we're focusing on the promised Holy Spirit. What did his coming look like? What did, it, what did it do? And what does it mean for us today? And we'll find answers to those questions, of course, as we look to the place where we get answers to our questions. Would you look with me at Acts chapter 2? Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? We'll just read the first 13 verses this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others... Mocking said, they're filled with new wine. The end for today. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes that we might understand your word and be transformed by the power of your spirit. That the gift of God's Spirit was coming is, is clear in Scripture. Moses looked forward to the day when God's Spirit would be poured out, fall upon his people. Numbers eleven twenty nine. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, he said. That the Lord would put his Spirit on them. And God said in Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. We've already talked about the past, the past couple weeks. Jesus, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Does, does God come through on his promises? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is a reality taught in Scripture. He's the third person in the Trinity. That is, he is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. He, he's his own personhood, but shares the same essence, the same stuff, if you can call it stuff, as the Father and the Son. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's all-just, and in his being, he doesn't, he doesn't age, he doesn't fade, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the one that Jesus promised would come he has come, and we will see him work powerfully as we continue on in the book of Acts. And in fact, if you're a believer today, he's alive and well within you, intimately marking you, identifying you, and infusing in you the life and righteousness of Jesus Christ, the risen King. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. How can you say that, Paul? <laughs> it's because of the Spirit. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Unlike believers before this day, the day we're looking at here in Acts chapter uh, 2, the Holy Spirit imparts within Christians now the life of Christ. And that doesn't mean that they weren't saved before. They weren't saved by faith. No, their faith was counted to them as righteousness, just as Abraham's faith was. And that's how people pre-Pentecost were saved. We're saved by faith, yes? Yes. Ephesians 2 says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. We're all saved by faith. But post-Pentecost... The spirit of the victorious risen Lord dwells within you in a more significant, more powerful, and, and permanent way. You get that? You, you, you comprehend that? Do you understand how, how huge this is? I was taught as a child uh, that. I, I, I believe that. But then when I encountered some different thinking, that, that led me to a bit of a, a, bit of a crisis moment, you might say, and I needed to recalibrate myself with some good teaching, some good theology, some true words from Scripture, and I hope that's what we'll do today as we walk through this passage this morning. Let's reinforce and in some cases establish for the first time some solid biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit. We, we need this stuff. We do. If you're a believer living in a fallen world, which you are, if you have trusted in Christ, if you've been called to be a witness and to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous kingdom of light, then you need to know what the power of the Holy Spirit is and what it isn't. So let's do that this morning. Let's, let's, let's begin to build or rebuild or, or just remind ourselves of what the power of the Holy Spirit stuff is all about. What does it look like? What is, what is Acts 2, 1 through 13 tell us. We'll get a few pieces to our puzzle here. Four truths that I want to extract from the passage this morning. And the first is this, the Spirit comes providentially. Providentially, a word that's not mentioned much today, but it is important. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, stop, just right there, you see God's providence. Pentecost means 50th. It's the New Testament name for the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after the last day of Passover. Passover is the feast that remembers the lamb's blood being put uh, on the doorpost of every Israelite house in Egypt so that the angel of death, God's judgment, sent to Egypt that would pass over the house and not kill the firstborn male children of the Israelite households. And of course, we know that, that that event in history was a foreshadowing of what was to come, a bigger Passover that was to happen, and that it points to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. His blood applied to our lives saves us from the punishment of our sin. And Jesus, just before he went to the cross, celebrates the Passover with his disciples. It's just amazing how 
God's providence works here. He providentially, intentionally weaves all of this together so that even the days that these things fall, when Christ's death on the cross is approaching, it it all falls together. Hours later from this, Jesus would be that ultimate, once and for all, Passover lamb. Now, the day after Passover, uh, there was uh, another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you've spent much time in the Bible, you probably know that when Israel finally was released from their bondage in Egypt, they didn't have time to put any leaven in their dough. No leaven in the dough, so the bread was unleavened. It was flat bread. And this was the first bread that they tasted in freedom. They're tasting this flat bread. It, it's this feast of unleavened bread. It's, it's, it, they, they declare first fruits. And they hold up the flat bread. And they wave it. First fruits of what's to come. Bread is going to taste so much better when it's free. When we are free. This was the first taste that they had. First fruits of a new era. And just as the flat bread was considered the first fruits and was, and was celebrated on Sunday, so Jesus, who rose from the dead on Sunday, was considered the first fruits. If you look in the New Testament, you will see he was the first fruits. Rose from the dead on Sunday, considered the first fruits of all who would be raised from death to life. By believing in him. And we may look at this and we may be pretty impressed at how God laid all of this out. There's more, though. The foreshadowing of those Old Testament events, it's, it's just it's so spot on. But when you look deeper and you look further on to the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after, you see there was, a, there was a, another a second first fruits celebration. <laughs> this time, the bread that was to be held up, it, it had leaven in it. It had leaven in it. It was, it was filled bread. And what's more, not just one loaf would be held up. Two loaves are held up and waved in front of the people. It's on that day, in this event that we just looked at in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, on this day, that's when God would infuse his people with his promised Holy Spirit. And we'll see later in the book of Acts that it wasn't just for Jews. It was for Gentiles as well. Two loaves, oh, oh, all of a sudden, that kind of makes sense. This actually fits. Two loaves filled with leaven, Pentecost for Jesus' disciples, just like the actual feast was another first fruits moment here. What was taking place in in, in the first time transition-like event would be a sign 
a sign of what would now be given a given reality for all believers to follow. This is the first fruits that we're seeing right here. Both Jews and Gentiles would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of this should scream out loud and clear that God has a plan. And it's unfolding here. This is amazing stuff. This is, this is his game. This is his story. The Holy Spirit comes providentially. And the fact that this happened on Pentecost tells us this is God's design. Isn't this God's design, people? Not only do we see his providence in, in the design of it, but we also see it in the, in the nature of it as well. In the nature of the Spirit's arrival. Verse 2 says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind. Doesn't say that there was a mighty rushing wind. There was the sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the disciples knew from what Jesus told them that the, the Spirit was going to come. Remember we talked about last week, they were waiting. They were on hold. They were in that in-between moment. But they didn't exactly know what it was going to look like, what it was going to feel like, what this experience was. Luke tells us that when all these followers were in one place, something happened. And Luke says it happened suddenly. That word suddenly, it tells us it, it, was, it was rather startling. It, it was surprising. All of a sudden, the time had come. It, unmistakably, it's here. It's now. Okay, the sound of a mighty rushing wind filled the whole house. Something that looked like individual flames of fire appeared, rested upon them. Was this the disciples' doing? No, not their doing. It's the result of something they initiated? No, they're just waiting. They're just hanging out. In fact, Luke tells us that they were sitting they were sitting in verse 2. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, that means they probably weren't even praying at this moment. Because back in that day, you either stood to pray or you kneeled to pray. You didn't sit and pray. That's how it was done. And so it's not that they were praying, 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 spirit come, spirit come, spirit come for 10 whole days. Then finally, the prayer meter edged up to 100% maximum voltage. And then God says, yes, they made it. Here's my spirit. Whoosh. You guys earned it. Good job. No. No. He did it when he determined it was the right time. on the right day to show everyone this fits, this fits. See, I planned this all the way back, way back then, even before that actually, all part of the plan. No, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't praying in that moment. You know, there's actually not a single place in the New Testament where believers are commanded to seek to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not in there. When it comes to this baptism of the Holy Spirit, what was, what was true for them is, is, is actually true for us. It, it doesn't happen by their own effort. That, we're talking about the initial 
the initial indwelling, the initial immersing experience where the Spirit comes and makes a home inside of us, that isn't something we have to ask for. It's what God does. It's a gift from God. You don't need to pray for it. You don't need to earn it. You can't earn it. It's freely given by God. And someone says, wait a second here. Doesn't the Bible tell us to be filled with the Spirit? Yes, it absolutely does. Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled, imperative, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. This is where we have to understand that the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit are actually two different things. The baptism of the Spirit, that initial indwelling of the Spirit of God within a Christian, is something different from being filled with the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit happens once, one time. That's what initially takes part when you trust in Jesus Christ. He makes you part of his church, his body, by infusing his Spirit within you. Paul wrote in, uh, to the church in Corinth, this is later on, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were all, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So when the spirit comes in, you're united together with the rest of believers. Like we mentioned earlier in Galatians 2.20, believers, they're considered part of the body of Christ because the Spirit of Christ lives in them. The same is true for us, right? I mean, this is my body. <laughs> Hopefully no one debates that. <laughs> it's my body because my Spirit lives within this body. <laughs> and the same is true for Christ's church, his body. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He imparts Christ's life as the Spirit comes and makes his home each in each and every one of us. We're the body, right? Literally, we are the body of Christ with his spirit living within us. And we are many members. We all have different parts, all have different gifts, but we are one body because the same spirit is within us. That filling of the spirit, though, is different. The filling of the Spirit can happen over and over and over again, and it should actually be a continuous thing, Scripture tells us. The baptism of the Spirit, it marks a believer as one of God's people and a member of God's family. The filling of the Spirit, though, is what happens when believers, they rest in the, the promise that God is with them. They have their, their minds filled with, with, with God's Word, and they have their, their, their words and their thoughts and their actions ruled by the Spirit of God. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is, is the one who's influenced. He's the one who's moving. You are in line with God's Spirit. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.18, Be filled with the Spirit. Here's what, here's what it's going to look like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're going around, you're just praising God. You're just, God, you're amazing. I, I, I keep realizing it more and more. It's something that happens so often when Corey's leading us here worshiping and we're singing these truths and our spirits are going, yes, yes, yes. And we're just like, this is, this is good. This is good. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always 
and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything's lining up here. It's like going back to pre-fall here where you're walking in the garden with God and just living in, God, you are, you are my maker, you are my creator, I'm your child, and this is awesome. Being filled with the Spirit, it moves you in line with God's purposes. Your life, it brings glory to God. It brings good to his people as you do what he wants you to do. And not only does it move you to do what God wants you to do, it moves you not to do the things that God does not want you to do. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are, are against the spirit. Desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We should be longing for this. Spirit, fill me. Spirit, may my life be in line with you. We should be striving for this. We should be praying for the grace of God that we might be this. I want to do what you want me to do, and I want to say no to those desires of the flesh that are waging war against my soul. If you placed your trust in Christ, this is your target to hit. This is what you want. You want to be spirit-filled, spirit-aligned. You want to have that indwelling of God's spirit within you, informing you, leading you, ruling over you in all things, even when you're tired. But the initial giving of the spirit, the baptism of the spirit, that's all God's doing. The Spirit comes providentially. Secondly, notice, the Spirit comes universally. Verse 1 says, they were all together in one place. Verse 3, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rest on some, no, each of them. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, it didn't just come on some believers who were there. No, they, they all received the Spirit, just like when we place our trust in Jesus Christ now, all of us receive the Holy Spirit at that point, right then and there. And someone says, wait a second, there's something, something missing here, something a little flawed in your, in your argument here. Yes, all these, these believers here, they're all receiving the Spirit at the same time. But, but you know, they were believers before, Right? Right? Can we all want to say that? And yes, Jesus said, you of little faith, more than once to these people, but they, but they had faith, right? They, they, were, they were believers here, so clearly they were believers, and then the Spirit came later on. So how can you say that it all happens when we first trust in Jesus Christ now? Well, the reasoning is this. The reason the Spirit came later on for these believers here in Acts is because these people found themselves right smack dab in the middle of the time of transition. They were with Jesus pre-crucifixion. They're walking with him, talking with him, watching him, seeing him face to face. And Jesus said, I'm going to leave, but I'm sending a comforter to you. They were in between. Theologian Wayne Grudem 
in his book, Systematic Theology. It's, it's, it's excellent stuff. He's, he writes, they were living at the time of the transition between the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit, though it was a second experience of the Holy Spirit coming as it did long after their conversion, it is not to be taken as a pattern for us, for we are not living at a time of transition in the work of the Holy Spirit. That makes a big difference. Unlike us, they found themselves in that in-between moment we were talking about last week. They had to wait for God's timing. Every Christian after that does not. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 reveals to us. There's actually only seven places in the New Testament where it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is the pivotal one. Because some will say that this gives evidence to the fact that the Spirit comes later on. But if you go back to the original Greek, you find, no, 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 no. It it is the exact same language as the other passages. And Paul writes, just as one body, just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many are, are of one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit... In one spirit, we were all baptized in one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. This is after Pentecost. This is significantly after, and he's speaking to the church, and he's saying, all of you guys, all of you have been baptized into the spirit. You don't become a Christian and then later on experience the baptism of the Spirit. You don't trust in Jesus, then have to wait for a later time for the Holy Spirit to come inside and make you part of the body of Christ. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you are now part of the body of Christ. That's what it is. You're made part of that body, part of that family, adopted in as sons and daughters of the risen king right then and there. And that's why Paul can say to all believers in the church of Corinth, they're all baptized into one body in that way just as the spirit fell upon the believers here in acts so the spirit of god is given to each and every believer the first time they come to faith in him so if someone comes to you and they tell you you know brother sister uh you know you you need to receive the the holy spirit you say friend i'm i'm sorry I already have it. There's no such thing as a second-class Christian. (laughs) God didn't send his spirit to divide Christians between the haves and the have-nots. He didn't do that. No, the spirit unites the church. When you placed your trust in Jesus, you were united to the church as the spirit of God made its home inside of you. By all means, though, get down on your knees and pray for the fullness of the Spirit of God to be realized in your life. Lord knows we all have a long way to go on that road to spiritual maturity, don't we? I need the Spirit's influence to increase and become greater in me just as you do in you. But even so, he's already powerfully present within us. Spirit comes providentially. Spirit comes universally. This one's pretty obvious. The Spirit comes powerfully. The sound of a mighty wind, the appearance of flames of fire. 
Those are powerful images. This wasn't something that could have easily been missed. But what was even more dramatic was the, the result of the Spirit that it had on those believers. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And he lists off the people who were there. The sound, at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The difference that the Spirit made in the lives of these believers, unmistakable. They began speaking in other, other languages, languages that were not their own. Now, since the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, back on January 1st, 1901, at Bethel Bible College in Kansas, followed by the Azusa Street Revival in 1906, speaking in tongues has come to take on a new meaning, I believe an unbiblical meaning. We can talk about that later. But here at Pentecost, speaking in tongues, it was both powerful and it was intelligible. In fact, people are, people are bewildered. They're not bewildered because they, they think these people are just speaking gibberish. They're bewildered because they can understand what these people are saying. And, and knowing that that guy and that gal should not be able to talk like that. Verse 7 says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language? You know, I think it may have been, maybe it was, would have been believable if these were the academic elites. <laughs> yeah, they studied hard, they learned this stuff, yeah, they could do that. But no, that's not the people who were speaking to them. This was the uneducated, underinformed Galileans, the average Joe. Remember Philip? He comes to Nathaniel back in John 1. And he says, I found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, You've got to be kidding me. Can anything good? Come out of Nazareth? That's the kind of people they were. This is obviously a supernatural event. The Spirit had come and was powerfully enabling these believers to speak in these other languages. And this is where some will tell you that this is the key indicator of being baptized by the Spirit. This is it. And no doubt that that speaker at that men's retreat was thinking that. He's like, son, you can't speak in tongues. Well, you haven't received the baptism of the Spirit. We need to pray right here, right now. And I believe he had the best intentions. But it's important for us to point out that if you scour the New Testament, what you see is that speaking in tongues, it's not the normal result of the baptism of the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. In Acts 4, 8, we read, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, he has this boldness, this newfound boldness. Peter, the cowardly guy, he's boldly speaking because the Spirit is filling him. The same thing happens in Acts 4, 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Acts 7, the filling of the Spirit enabled Stephen to take on this whole new visual acuity. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Boy, I wish I had that filling of the Spirit. In Acts 9, the Spirit enables Paul to regain his sight. 
That's Acts 9.17. In Acts 13.9, it says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? I said that to someone just the past week. No. Wow. Filled with the Spirit, he's boldly calling it like it is and calling out sin. Not one of these instances, though, talk about speaking in tongues. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. We already read that. It's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart, and so on and so forth. And then he says, submit out of reverence to Christ. Do you know from there, you know what he goes on to talk about next? <laughs> talks about how husbands filled with the Spirit, they should be showing Christ-like sacrificial love to their wives. And he says, wives, submit to your, their, your husbands as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. We want evidence of the Holy Spirit powerfully working in the life of a believer. Check out a believing husband that puts his selfish wants and desires to death so that he might do what is best for his wife. Check out the believing wife who fights off everything inside and all those cultural voices on the outside that tell her to disregard and disrespect and go around undermining her husband. And instead, she lovingly looks to him as a gift from God. Check out the teenager who goes totally countercultural and honors his or her father and mother. Now check out the church member fighting off pride, resisting the temptation to be divisive in the body. Is that a temptation sometimes? Oh, yeah. Have I experienced it? Yeah, I've felt that temptation before. Check out the believer with the terminal illness or that debilitating impairment, and they're going out of their way to encourage other believers, reminding them of their one and only hope. And we could go just on and on and on, but you get the idea. Yes, the indwelling of the Spirit grants believers great supernatural, God-given power that doesn't necessarily look like speaking in foreign languages. Providentially, universally, powerfully, finally, the Spirit comes purposefully. This ties it together. The crowd went on saying, verse 8, how, how is it that we hear, each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and so on and so forth, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What was it that these Parthians and these Medes and these Elamites, people from far off lands, were hearing the believers talk about in their own languages? The mighty works of God. Well, what were the mighty works of God that they were talking about? Were they talking about how God made the heavens and the earth in the beginning? Well, it's possible. Was it about how God gave his spirit? And they too could speak in other languages if you just pray the right way. Probably not. Was it about how if they, if you just have enough faith in God, he's going to make you happy and healthy and wealthy? No way. 
No way. No, if, if what we see spirit-filled believers talking about throughout the rest of the book of Acts, if that's any indicator to us, then these people were talking about the mighty work of God that he accomplished in raising Jesus Christ from the dead, and that by believing, they too might have life in his name. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. What will you be? You will be witnesses. And that's exactly what the baptism of the Spirit enabled them to do, to be witnesses of the risen King to the world. The past few hundred years or so, people have been talking a lot about the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's all kinds of things that they, they attribute the Spirit doing. Uh, the, the Spirit causes people to fall down. The Spirit makes you laugh or shout or talk in, in some type of gibberish or, or even bark. The Holy Spirit makes you dance, makes you jump, makes you shake, makes you convulse. The Holy Spirit allows you to see the future. The Holy Spirit allows you to hold poisonous snakes and not be <laughs> toast. Any number of other things. Some are, some are a little hard to believe, and I'd suggest a great deal of discernment and examination when looking at them. Others are, are downright ridiculous and dangerous and a mockery to the Spirit himself, and I think should be condemned. But if Acts 2 is telling us anything, it is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowers believers to be witnesses to a desperate, watching world that the victorious, risen King is its one and only hope. Let's land. How is it that the Spirit is empowering you? In your unique place and time, and situation in life. How is God's Spirit empowering you to be a witness for Jesus Christ? Are you heeding the prompting of the Holy Spirit within you to testify to the mighty works of God? How are you proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? And make no mistake, that's risky business. Some in the crowd there in Jerusalem, they looked at these guys and they totally misinterpreted it and they said, they're drunk, condemning them. You guys are full of new wine. And the same thing's happening today. Just this past week, in the news this week, an Australian football club CEO on the job for one day and was fired. Because they found out that he was a member, in fact, an elder, elder chair, I think, of a local church that believed and holds to what the scripture says. As it turns out, he's like, I didn't know the church taught that. I, I don't believe that stuff. That really doesn't matter. The sobering reality is this is headed our way. Great new job. CEO, you're done. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness of Jesus Christ is dangerous stuff. You being present in this room is dangerous stuff. You becoming a member of this church is dangerous stuff. You going out into your world and proclaiming the mighty works of God is dangerous stuff. It may cost you some things. It may cost you a job. It may cost you your reputation, your place in the public square. A lot of other things. But when you think about it, the converse is much worse. 
denying Christ to save your image will surely cost you your soul. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, including your job? <laughs> Forfeits his soul. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Does that sound a little scary? Bar set pretty high. Does it sound like standing tall as a faithful witness to the risen king? Does that, that sound like a terrifying prospect? We don't need to be afraid. Because that's exactly what the Spirit of God living inside of you and me enables us powerfully to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. My friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have that power already. Let's be the witnesses that he's called us to be. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, may we be found among those who gladly lay it down, everything down for you. By the power of your Spirit, May we boldly testify to the mighty works of your hand. May we powerfully, unashamedly, joyfully proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And may we lovingly come alongside and encourage each other, Lord, to do the same. And we pray these things in the strong and mighty living name of Jesus and the power of his spirit. Amen.